Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dan Saladino is a renowned food journalist who has worked at the BBC for 25 years. For more than a decade, he's traveled the world recording stories of foods at risk of extinction. And he's here to chat about that very important subject today in his must-read book, Eating to Extinction, the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them. Dan, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's great to have you. The book is a great book. It is such an important book. It is a critical book given what's going on in the world. You know, the title again is Eating to Extin- Extinction, the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them. And, and we do need to save them. And so look, you're, you're a prolific writer. You're an award-winning journalist. What led you down this path? Why this book? You could have written lots of other books, but why this book? Well, the reason is that I fell in love with the stories. I had um, traveled to Sicily back in 2007, and I was there to make a radio program about the citrus harvest. And it was going to be a celebratory program and meeting lots of farmers. But when I arrived, I was told by many of these farmers that the fruit that they had been growing and their ancestors for a thousand years, it was going to be the last harvest for many of them. And I also went to a meal that evening after having that conversation and at the meal in which the citrus fruit was being used in all five courses of this meal as a celebration of what was endangered and disappearing. At that meal was somebody who traveled from the north of Italy, and that person uh, was representing slow food. And he told me that these fruits were being added to something called the Ark of Taste, which I I hadn't come across before. But then I learned that this was a catalog, mostly an online catalog of the world's most endangered foods. And today that catalog has around 5,000 foods from more than 130 different countries. And I fell in love with these stories because they were each one transported me to a, a different place and it had lots of history and stories of cultures. And I followed these um, stories wherever I could and, and researched them uh, for more than 10 years, making radio programs. But it was only in writing the book I I. Uh, say that I joined the dots and realized the true extent of what was unfolding around the world. You mentioned the true extent and like every great book, you know, there's great storytelling, but then there's also great data, great science numbers that just jump out at you. And and there were two in particular that jumped out at me. And the first one, you know, in the book say over time, humans have eaten over 6,000 different species of plants, 6,000. Today, Mm. we mainly eat nine. Yes. And just three of those provide more than 50% of the world's calories. And, and that's, and it, and perhaps it might not be surprising to many people, but it's wheat, it's rice, it's maize. But yes, we, uh, you know, plant scientists and experts who study the history and you know, what's out there, humans have domesticated. So we've taken from the wild and we've turned into, uh, plant foods for us, six to 7,000 different plants. And yeah, it, it was a fascinating story to firstly understand how we reduced 
that number and reduce diversity, how and when that happened and why, and then to realize in writing the book why it really mattered. That not only had that happened, but what we were losing in the process. Well, you know, in, in terms of how we got there, we are going to dive deeper on crop diversity and biodiversity. You know, another stat that jumped out on me, you know, seeds. Seeds are mostly in control of just four corporations. Cheese. Half of the world's cheeses are produced with bacteria or enzymes manufactured by a single corporation. And look, like, look, big business can do a lot of good things. I'm not anti-big business, but seems to be a problem here as we think about, like, for, for a variety of reasons. So when I see a stat like that, I say, I take a step back and, and, and one, I'm in awe. Then two, you know, what do we do? Like that, mm. that's kind of hard to unwind. Mm. And I think that's, I wanted that reaction when I was writing the book, because this idea that you and I and many people uh, alive today are thinking that they have a greater degree of diversity in, in what they can buy and choose to eat. And on, on one level, that's true. I mean, but the stats you've just mentioned, they reveal that diversity that we're enjoying is relatively superficial because what you're describing in those stats from the book is the building blocks, the foundations of the food system, what does lie beneath the surface. And absolutely right, that the big business can do great things. And what I have tr tried not to do in the book is a lot of finger wagging and blame, blaming a particular part of the food system for where we've ended up. But what, what I've tried to highlight is not only the lack of diversity in genetic resources, uh, there's crop diversity in animal breeds, but also the consolidation that's happened in the second half of the 20th century. And we can talk about why some of that's happened. Seeds are one of the most perhaps hidden, but one of the most important parts of the food system. And what unfolds in the second half of the 20th century is a relatively small number of chemical companies start to buy up smaller seed companies until by the 1980s and 90s, we are starting to see the formation of this very small group of global players who not only control seeds in that they are the ones who are breeding and developing seeds, but also they're, they're selecting what, what will be grown in the future and also the control over the distribution to farmers around the world as well. I think of it two ways, you know, one, there's consolidation at the corporate level, and then two, there's consolidation at the crop level <laughs> in terms of diversity. and. I also am of the belief that, you know, when there is awareness, when you have consumers that are aware, corporations are in the business of returning shareholder value. And if consumers have the ability to vote with their dollars, corporations will move. And like, like, you know, regenerative ag specifically, there have been some companies out there in, in the U S that have done a lot of good that, you know, general mills, like they've done a lot and look, we can always do more, but like. They get it. They're trying to, and I think that's powerful. So like with that said, with regards to crop diversity, one is beyond the consolidation, what is driving that and, and what can we do there? It's helpful just to make reference to the green revolution, because that was such, um, an important episode in, in the last century in, in terms of shaping the, 
the kind of agriculture and foods that we're eating today. But we also need to go back a bit further. So towards the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, this is when you know, the, the, the term genetics was coined the, the, and some of the first applications of the understanding of genetics was in plant breeding, crop breeding. And so at, at the very beginning of the 20th century, we embarked on an extremely important mission to increase yield of some of these crops. But the Green Revolution coupled that science um, with the post-war boom in uh, the production of fo fossil fuel dependent fertilizers, but also pesticides and herbicides. So this package really does come together after the Second World War and produces huge amounts of calories for the world. And, and as population grows as well, I guess it's the application of that science to deliver more and more calories. But the, the point that I make in the introduction to the book is that this is a short-lived success because we know we are farming on borrowed time in terms of water, soil, fossil fuels, emissions, etc. But also that success in producing calories is posing a very big public health question around the world as well. And so again, I'm, it, it, the book isn't trying to do a bit of a blame game of who's at fault and it's all about corporate consolidation. It's far more complex than that. But I think in the 21st century, we are starting to realize the costs that have been paid for that relatively short-term success. I 100% agree. And I very much appreciate about that, that about the book, because it's so easy to play the blame game. We talk about the food system, biodiversity, so they're bad, and the government, and everyone, and look at everyone's, there's a lot of room for improvement. So before we go back to how we should be thinking about prioritizing biodiversity, you mentioned the water. We don't talk about it enough. I feel like we're, we're mm -hmm. getting there. You know, we talked, we tend to talk about the food system and crop diversity quickly, you know, corn subsidies, you know, empty calories, corn syrup, that rabbit hole, I think our audience gets it. And, and we talk about the ocean sometime, but let's spend a little bit more time about the biodiversity in our oceans and what's happening there. Cause it, in some ways, I think that's more concerning. Absolutely. So I have dedicated, well, there are 10 parts in the book and one of them is dedicated to, um, yeah, it, it's what's happening and unfolding in, in the oceans. And I start with the story of the wild Atlantic salmon, which I think is such an important story because of the, uh, you know, the fact that this is a, a fish that starts off in freshwater rivers and then makes this epic journey across the oceans, the Atlantic to its feeding grounds and then returns to its, its birthplace as well. So in one fish, we are, we have the story of what has, what's been unfolding on land through the river systems and then what we have done to the oceans as well. And what has happened with the wild Atlantic salmon is that the fewer and fewer of the fish are returning to the rivers and in many parts of the um, uh, North Atlantic, it is becoming a, an extremely rare fish and it's ex and ex extremely worrying what might unfold in the future when it comes to its potential extinction. And it also captures so much of you know issues of pollution, of changing river networks through damming, for example. Um, but also the idea that the you know climate change is changing the way in which the oceans are functioning and the food supplies and the different types of fish that are moving through the seas, migrating because of different temperatures. And then finally, there's also the idea of aquaculture 
And it's a live question to what extent this process of domestication that's happened in your lifetime and my lifetime of taking a fish and and putting them in pens, um, the interaction between the wild and the farmed is of, of concern to many fish scientists. We don't know the full extent of it. We're still researching and learning to what extent parasites from the pens are impacting on the wild, for example. So I, th- I think, yeah, the, the wild Atlantic salmon is such a powerful story and also weaves in cultures around the world, people who for thousands of years have been dependent on this fish as well. And it, that's the other thing I try and capture in the book. It's the interaction between what's happening environmentally, uh, but also what's happening culturally and socially and economically. And, and, and on that one specifically, so one, I love wild salmon. I, I felt it, I felt a shortage, you know, the, in New York City, there's an iconic, um, uh, restaurant deli called Russ and Daughters and they they do slice wild salmon and and it's to die for. And they had serious outages this year. And so granted, that's a very high class problem for for me here in New York. But I think of these foods, you know, I think of some of these foods are nutritional powerhouses. So like wild salmon, phenomenal source of Mm omega-3s. And so you've got so many great examples and you're such a great storyteller in the book of these foods we should be concerned about. So with the nutritional lens that foods are critical, like, you know, look, food is medicine, you know, supplements, all those things are helpful and so forth, pharmaceuticals when you need them, but like food is medicine. And from a nutritional perspective, and I put wild salmon on that list, what are some of the most critical that are in danger from like, in terms of a nutrition health perspective, like Mm -hmm. what comes another one that I'm curious, your take uh, the, the mermong out of Australia, like if you yeah, talk about that one yeah. or any others that come to mind, because like if, if we're trying to, if we're trying to eat for our health and well-being, we should be very concerned that some of these foods that are nutritional powerhouses are in, in, in serious danger. Mm, absolutely. And, and and again, in the book, I didn't want to go in into the nutrition in such a way that it, that I, I would have felt that I was exaggerating some of the, the importance of, of these foods at, a, at, a, at a, gl- a global level, because obviously many of these foods just exist within a, a relatively small setting and, a, and feed a small community. But the, the, the beauty of these foods is not only um, were, have they become adapted to the climate and the environment and the altitude of that specific part of the world, but they have almost co-evolved with the people in that part of the world over thousands of years. And so I was thinking when I was writing a book that I really wanted to get as close as I could as possible to the Fertile Crescent, where wheat and barley were domesticated to tell to help tell the story of how our ancestors domesticated these wild grasses and what became of them over the 10,000 years or so, but, and importantly in the last century as well. So I went to a village in Eastern Turkey where a, a, a really small number of farmers had kept hold of an emma wheat and emma along with iron corn, one of the earliest domesticated types of wheat in the world. And it was, Emma was the the wheat that fed ancient Egypt and the people who built the pyramids. It's the wheat that the people who erected Stonehenge were consuming. I mean, it was such an important type of grain. Also, people who are growing it today love these land races, not only for their resilience, but because they have these deep root 
systems as well. The argument is that they can they, they can reach nutrients in the soil that modern wheats, which don't need to have that root system, have. So, again, finding hard data on exactly what the difference is nutritionally between an emma wheat grown in that way and a modern wheat is very difficult, problematic, mostly because the research and the investment hasn't happened. However, we do know that the mineral content of those grains are higher. I mean, that's something that has been tested by researchers in the UK. Mernon, you mentioned, and I love that story of this, this route that was so important to the indigenous people of Australia that it was, and again, this is the story of tubers around the world in a, in, in a sense, that you know, underground, protected from the elements and actually some, a food that can exist underground for a very long time was the go-to energy store for the indigenous people, a crop that was decimated when the um, Europeans arrived in the 18th century because they introduced these animals, the sheep and the cattle that then spread through the landscape and pretty much wiped out this semi-domesticated. And again, I think... We're at a point where we're asking a question about what does the food system need to look like in the future? And in the book, I'm not saying that we need to go back and become hunter-gatherers again. However, surely a food that sustained Aboriginal people, Indigenous people in Australia for thousands of years has a value that for some reason in the 20th century, in the 21st century, we have either forgotten, neglected or ignored. So I think they are clues to what we need because what, what they are what has sustained us for so long. I love that story. And another one that jumped out and it hits home for our listeners in the States and another nutritional powerhouse, bison. So, mm. so can you share that story? What's happening with bison in the Great Plains? Again, uh, coming, I, mean, I, I was fortunate enough to travel to many of these places. So I ended up in southwestern Colorado at a place called Zapata Ranch, where the owner of the ranch in the 80s became obsessed with the bison and started to buy up some of the remaining bison to start to group, to develop a herd of, you know, a sizable herd um, of bison on, on the ranch. And then looking at the history of that, which is probably quite well known to most people in the US of the yeah the exterminate near extermination of the bison that unfolds in the 19th century particularly towards the end of the 19th century when certainly the technology was there the rail network you know the the, the weaponry the guns the horses and there was a system in which um the sizable numbers could be hunted and killed very quickly and much of the meat and the food went to waste but this uh, was such an important animal in terms of, again, uh, the Native Americans, because of the, every single part of the animal would have had a use from the hide and different cuts, cuts of meat. And then because of the conservation efforts in the early 20th century, the bison didn't go extinct, but there were such tiny numbers involved that, that many of the conservationists actually bred them with cattle. And so the genetic pool of the bison was weakened. And so what's happening at Zapata, Zapata Ranch, as well as other parts, uh, places in the States as well, is that they are doing DNA testing to identify the, the bison where there's still cattle genetics. And they're trying to breed a purer bison to 
bring the bison back in its genetic purity but the, yeah the bison that was lost and there's I, I think one of the most emotional parts of the book for me was having a conversation with an, somebody who was a scientist who was helping in this process of trying to eliminate the cattle DNA and she was working with Native American people and it got to the point where the young bison that she was raising and, and had bred were being released onto the plains and there was a moment when the, there, there were people performing a ceremony in the, and starting to drum and the not only did the people fall silent, but the bison fell silent as well. It's almost as if the connection was being made between the humans and the animals. And then they were, when they were released, and then people could almost feel the power of the animals as they left out onto the plains. It was an emo People were crying in crowds because of this sight that had disappeared, but had been such a, it must have been such a powerful thing to see thousands of bison crossing through the landscape in the early 19th century and beyond. It's such a powerful story. And for me, what was, what's so alarming, you know, as I hear your stories and, you know, reading the book, look, there are cultural implications. There are nutritional implications. There are environmental implications. And I'm concerned at, at the highest level, we're heading to this place where we have this, oh crap, this species over here, they're disappearing overnight and then we have to start playing god if you will with dna and modification and look i believe in science there's a lot of cutting edge technology but but at my core and our core i think you know the closer to earth the closer to nature the better without going down the rabbit hole of like fake meat like to me fake meat is not the answer at all it, it, it's a it's a it's a solution it's a fun fake meat junk food for people who don't want to consume meat but it is not the answer to climate change it can you know so got a bigger problem and that's such an important <laughs> point jason because the, I mean, one other thing about the story of the bison it wasn't just about the bison and the interaction with humans and the bison providing meat and they shaped a complete environment i mean there was a, a, an ecosystem that existed around the bison as well and uh, you're right that too often we are putting food into silos and, and this reductionist approach, whereas these are extremely complex systems. And we are, some of them, we don't even fully understand how they work. But yeah, you remove one part of that ecosystem and the bison was an extremely valuable, important one on so many levels, you disrupt the whole system. 100%. And like, look, we're mind, body, green, one word. It's all connected, mind, body, green. And and I'm glad we're talking about the ecosystem. It's so critical. We, we can't look at it in a siloed way. It is absolutely dangerous. Well, let's just remove this or less of that. And that goes away. We are naive to think that we understand what's truly happening in, in the ecosystem of planet Earth. <laughs> and to me, that's what's so scary when I, you know, the 6,000 to nine, whoa, whoa, whoa. What happens when we get to three? Mm, yeah. yeah. And, but fr from your vantage point, like going to the why, like, what are you most concerned about? I've remained optimistic and I hope you've taken something optimistic. Mean, th there are huge issues we face now because of the extent to which we have not only damaged biodiversity, but this loss of agrobiodiversity as well. And I think there is so much that we have lost nutritionally, culturally, economically, you know, in terms of people being self-sufficient in communities, 
So as you say, it's so complex. It's so interlinked. However, the word biodiversity itself, it wasn't being, it wasn't familiar a word a decade ago. We are starting to talk about this a lot more now, and I don't think it's too late. But the book is also a celebration of the people out there around the world, the many people who've dedicated their lives to saving these foods and this diversity. And it's almost as if science is now catching up after this spell cast by the Green Revolution that it was going to fix everything and that we felt that we could override all of those natural systems to produce all the food we would ever need. But the costs are now mounting and people are now in um, governments are investing in crop in, for example, in crop wild relatives. So as we become more concerned over the future of wheat, for example, because it could be overwhelmed eventually by fungal diseases, because we are no longer allowing the disease and the crop to co-evolve. We've removed so many of these crops from those evolutionary forces. Uh, And so we can only do something very simplistic with them. And so I, you know, I think we are, you know, governments have recognized they're investing so that scientists can go back to the wild and bring in some of those genetics. So a, a lot is happening behind the scenes. But yeah, the thing that I'm most worried about is that we have so fundamentally changed our relationship with food that the that disconnect we now have, which means that we are paying a huge price in terms of our health and also the health of the planet as well. How do we repair and restore that relationship and that connection? So we can have seed banks and seed vaults and we can preserve the genetics, but it's that knowledge and skill and relationship with food that I feel has been so abruptly and violently broken. That's what we need to restore somehow. And so you're an optimist. I'm an optimist. Our our audience is optimistic. They're smart, capable, action-oriented bunch. And so what what can we all do? I I think anyone listening to this right now is saying, wow, this is a serious problem. And the next question is, all right, what what can I do? You know, what what can I, what, how can I vote for my dollars? What can I do at home? Like what, what can someone, how can we be the change that we want to see? Yeah. And there are things we can do. I would qualify it by saying there's only so much we can do because there are some very big structural forces that need to be remedied. And we can talk about that as well. But at an individual level, I think that there are a few things that I can hopefully give the audience that to, t- to take away. I mean, the reason why it was important for me to write the book is knowledge is, is power in a sense that this story is so hidden to many of us, this idea of food diversity and also that hidden diversity as well that we've mentioned, you know, in terms of how cheeses are made or how wheat, how strains of wheat are bred and so on. So I think it's, A, it's important to know the story and then also understand the value of diversity. The first chapter is one of the most important stories in the book. It's the story of the Hadza in eastern Tanzania, so which is in eastern Africa, the last of the remaining hunter-gatherers, 
in Africa, practicing no form of agriculture, and their relationship with their their surrounding environment is, and I, I spent some time with them, and it was just incredible that children as young as five could completely read the landscape and knew, and they all that a child in, as could, as young as five understood. I mean, might not know the word biodiversity, but they really understood the biodiversity of their environment. We need to all become a little bit more like the Hadza. And by that, I don't mean we need to go back to becoming hunter-gatherers. We just need a greater awareness of the environment in which we exist and the food and farming stories that surround us. Even if we live in an urban area, it, you don't have to go that far out to actually understand that there is food production taking place out there. It could be that there are food producers within a city that we, we can make relationships with and support and to try and not only bring in diversity of food, but also diversity of food businesses as well. So that's one thing is just be like a Hadza, think like a Hadza, have a different way of interacting with your environment. Secondly, in, enjoy and explore diversity. Take your favorite food, whether it's chocolate or coffee or cheese take one example of that and explore the diversity and in interrogate the diversity of that product understand what difference a, a, a cacao um, bean from a part of venezuela or uh, ecuador tastes like and consists of and the different processes so i think we we can become our own experts in some degree of the diversity of our favorite foods and there are so many other um, ways in which at a community level we can interact. So here, for example, I'm talking to you from the UK in the Southwest, where we have orchards, some of the last remaining historical orchards. Many of these are community owned and they depend on communities acting together to save the local varieties of apples that have gone extinct from the major supply chains. So again, at a local level, it's possible to, to yeah, go in and make a difference. And at an individual level, it's never been more important because the, as you know, the emerging science of the gut microbiome, for example, and the importance of diversity of our diets, the Hadza have a potential menu of 800 different plants and animals. We will never return to that level of diversity, but, and they are modern humans who are opting to live a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, but they surely are a powerful signal to us that the, the, the human story is one in which diversity within diets and from landscapes is essential to our well-being and our identity and our happiness. Amen. Amen. And so I, I think you answered my next question, but just to clarify, I was going to say, who, who is, is there a model for us? Is there a country? Is it the Hadza? Like, is he, you know, in all of your travels, are these, is this the group of people who kind of got it right or is there someone else that comes to mind that we could look to i think diversity has been lost in most parts of the world and 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 in in a sense the hadza or the the story of murnong shows the extent to which even within remote indigenous communities we have exerted our influence so powerfully that we have we you know this problem has touched most parts of the world. And as we know, in terms of, you know, whether it's palm oil or soy, the levels of deforestation as well. So I can't point to what, you know, a particular part of the world in which there is a food system that's really thriving and, and rich in, in biodiversity. Clearly, some parts of the world are less touched 
by uniformity than others. And so the book is full of stories of meeting the people who are still, for example, growing varieties of tubers and ochres in the Andes. And also, you know, I traveled to a part of China where I met a farmer who was preserving now extremely rare type of red grained rice, which again has a, a really appealing nutritional profile as well. The interesting thing about that farmer in China was that he was standing in his farm, surrounded by his rice in the middle of nowhere, and then suddenly gets out his phone. And he's on a system called WeChat. And he's talking to customers in Beijing and Chengdu and these other big urban areas. Technology is a way in which we can find diversity and actually help protect diversity by making that direct connection with farmers. But I would cite examples such as the city of Copenhagen, which, as we know, has a flourishing restaurant scene, has some of the most celebrated chefs in the world. But take a look at the schools and the way in which the city has carried out its, its mission of public procurement. So the way in which it publicly buys food to get into schools to feed to children diversity became a really important component. So they said to growers, it doesn't matter just how much your apples cost or how many you can sell. We will also reward you for how many different varieties of apples you can sell to us. Love it. There are mechanisms by which at a public level, we can do that. And I think there are some more progressive cities and leaders around the world who are doing this. I love it. And it in closing, there's, there's a travel component to you in this book. You know, I couldn't help but read the book. And then again, hear, hearing you, I think a lot of people are going to walk away envious of all the exotic and unique places you've had the opportunity to spend time in. So on that note, I'm curious, is there one place in all of your travels where you just said to yourself, like, wow, this place is special. If only more people knew, or let's not tell anyone about this place. You know, is there a place that stands out? I, yeah, uh, well, um, it's this, there's a chapter in the cheese section and it's about a cheese called Michavin and it comes from the highlands, the kind of the mountainous part of Albania, which, uh, in just a picture of a, a map of, of Europe, it's, it's, it just to the east of Italy. It's not that far from Greece as well. But for most of the 20th century, it was one of the most closed off parts of the world under a communist dictatorship. It opened up again in the 90s, but it's remained an extremely poor country. And one chef told me that when diplomats get sent to Albania as a posting, uh, they cry twice. They cry once. <laughs> they cry once when they arrive, thinking, "Why have I been sent to Albania?" And they cry twice. They cry the cry the second time when they leave because they've fallen in love with the country. And I fell in love with the, the Albania, the landscape, the countryside, the people, but also this idea that in these remote villages that were extremely tribal for very long. So there were blood feuds, for example. But when they opened up in the 90s and there was huge rural depopulation, so much was lost. And I met some amazing people who were saving, preserving some of the foods that were just a, a, a glimmer of a memory in the minds of their grandparents. And they were bringing them back because that was 
part of their culture and identity, even though they were of a generation where they didn't have that direct experience. And so when I left, I cried. I, and I, I just fell in love with the story of reclaiming something after such hard times in the 20th century. And it was a beautiful experience. Well, I think Albania just made everyone's bucket list. Dan, thank you so much. Love the book, an important book, Eating to Extinction. Everyone pick it up. Thank you so much, Jason. <laughs>